Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the film Interstellar, concluding a two-month kind of double feature on Christopher Nolan, where in May we covered the film Prestige. And this will actually conclude a season where I did two films, at least, by three different directors. Uh, In Darren Aronofsky's case, we covered three, and then I started the season off with Jane Campion. So sort of a season of mini-seasons, almost, in a way. Now, usually at the outset of these podcasts, I share the work I've been up to. There's so much work, and it makes sense to describe some of it in detail. I'm going to save that till the end of this podcast, because, man, it would be holding up the interstellar discussion by six or seven minutes, at least. So uh, we will wait, and I'll share my updates at the end of this. But I do also have some listener feedback, which I'll be sharing uh, after the interstellar discussion. So let's jump right into Christopher Nolan And uh, before we do, just want to note that uh, if you have any thoughts on this film, please write in and I will share your listener feedback on future episodes. There's no time limit on this stuff. And that goes for any episode back in my archive as well or any other work I've done, honestly. I'll share it on here. Happy to discuss that. And we count these moments. The first ever to fly faster than the speed of sound. These moments when we dared to aim higher. To break barriers. To reach for the stars. 76, you are go. To make the unknown known. Most of you listening have probably seen Interstellar, but to just give a quick recap, it's a film set in the somewhat remote, but probably fairly near future, maybe mid-21st century. And there's sort of a new dust bowl on Earth. A blight is killing most of the world's crops. People are starving. There aren't many people left. And, uh, you know, life has become sort of depleted. Technology has diminished and everything like that. Matthew McConaughey plays a farmer, raising his family, trying to keep his mind on the practicalities they face. But he's also a bit of a dreamer who had a great talent, I believe, in the field of physics, although... Don't quote me on that. But he was always hoping to do more with his life, and he he didn't really get the opportunity. But through this series of uh, strange phenomena, which we find more about at the end of the movie, he's actually led to a secret NASA base, and he becomes part of a flight crew that's going off into outer space through a wormhole and trying to find a habitable planet so that Earth's population, which is dying off, can hopefully be transported there. That's the plan A. And the plan B is they carry a bunch of uh, frozen eggs and they'll start a colony And uh, if if they find a habitable planet and leave everyone on Earth there to die, which is, uh, you know, they're all hoping they don't have to stick with plan B. So interesting things happen. They go to different planets. And here's what I really find most attractive about the film is it's just visually quite gorgeous like the images he finds and they're actually especially when he's taking this long view in outer space of their ship um flying in front of like uh saturn and things like this just beautiful visual textures and i think that's something where although i sometimes find christopher nolan's compositional techniques uh to be sort of frustrating and limited the actual texture of his images i think is often really attractive he uses imax a lot Uh, He tends to stay away from sort of the slick CGI look of a lot of films. He uses practical effects whenever he can. Um, I believe there was actually projection used 
on set so that rather than digitally compose images, he was actually filming the actors in front of the images themselves. There's robots in the films, which were at least partially puppets and then had the digital aspect was the erasing of the puppeteers. But he does make all these interesting moves, and I think they really pay off quite wonderfully in the movie. There's just a lot of very sort of weird visual ideas at times. Like, for example, those robots, where they're these sort of blocks, these monolithic moving blocks, which feels like a very cute uh, tribute to Kubrick, you know, with the monoliths, sort of combining the monoliths with Hal. Uh, In this case, it's a a robot named Tars. There's a funny quote I have to share from the Wonders in the Dark article in which Bob Clark, in his inimitable way, makes an interesting point. He says, We have a movie where the most interesting plot developments are all backstory. There was a huge international war involving monolith robots that NASA went underground after refusing to nuke whole nations at a time, and we're stuck watching John Lithgow complain about popcorn at ball games. Nonetheless, it's kind of interesting, and I have some respect for this idea that Nolan has of setting the whole first half hour or 45 minutes of the film in this Dust Bowl arena. It's very perverse, and I kind of admire that gesture. Um, That is definitely not something you would probably see in that many contemporary blockbusters. Uh, Although it does recall uh, the Superman film where you're watching Clark Kent grow up in this Midwestern farmland. You're waiting for him to become a superhero, and it's actually just for a while this coming-of-age teenage film story. And I think actually uh, the Superman story was cited as part of the reason that Nolan was drawn to this, so, so that's nice connection there. That said, the strongest parts of the movie are definitely the space travel and just some of those beautiful images and some of those great ideas. Like, for example, there's a scene where they land on a watery planet and the water only comes up to their ankles until it doesn't. And that's a really cool device and just one of the most striking images that I've seen. So I think the thing with Nolan is oftentimes what he films is really inventive and riveting and fascinating. There's just sometimes an issue with how he films it. And I think that's somewhat less true in this film. I remember the Dark Knight films, particularly Batman Begins, I think, fell into this sort of born uh style that was popular at the time with just this whole shaky cam fast cuts and i know that nolan sometimes has a habit of not planning things out so much but just shooting off the cuff on the set i think he describes it almost like a documentary style and uh that approach sometimes doesn't really work that well for me now in interstellar the film is more visually interesting i i do think sometimes the shooting style does feel a little chaotic and there's a weird thing going on with shading where it's sometimes hard to distinguish things within the frame. And at times that can be sort of frustrating. At other times it works, I think, in the films, to the film's benefit. I know, for example, like with Tars the robot, there's times where I almost couldn't see him in the frame because he's reflective and he blends in with the background. And at times it was like, you know, I I wanted there to be more of an iconic nature to the uh, photography where the images would pop more and you'd be able to make things out. But sometimes... It works to drive it into this realm of almost abstraction, which I think pays off, especially at the end, where there's a black hole and that space, what's the term for it? The Tesseract, I think. Apropos of nothing, but this just really stuck out to me as sort of an odd choice in coloring and the visual template. There's a scene where Matthew McConaughey is sort of embracing his daughter before he leaves and talking to her, and I just was struck with how pale she is and how tan he is. And I don't know if this was supposed to be the idea that he's out working on the farm and she stays inside and read books. 
um, which is an interesting idea, but uh, very sort of distracting to see on screen. Like he's almost orange. Now, near the end of the movie, I think he makes a mistake in cross-cutting the sequence on Earth where Jessica Chastain is burning the field and the brother's running out into the field. And I kind of saw what they were going for, but it just didn't feel like it had a real dramatic payoff. And um, it just felt very odd to intercut with the sequence with uh, Matt Damon on the icy planet. It didn't quite click. And I think most of the film is pretty expertly paced and structured. And that was just the part where it felt like he had an idea that kind of misfired a little bit. So with all of that in mind, I do think no Nolan film better highlights the inventiveness of what he films, despite the sometimes undistinguished way that he films it. And in some ways, the pictures are so strong and strange that he's able to transcend those limitations, or at least come closer to any other film. So that sounds sort of backhanded compliment for a film that I, I like and a, a filmmaker whose work I enjoy more often than not, and actually will seek out at a time when I don't often seek out that many uh, new films. I'll usually go and see his, although, as I said, I did miss Dunkirk. But I think part of the reason I can be a little tough on him is because he's sort of reaching for the stars. This is a film that's been compared to 2001 a lot, and I think it just unfortunately comes off as very conventional at times when that's the barometer it's being held against. When you look at it from the other angle of, of against films that have sort of a similarly somewhat grounded and conventional story uh, within a genre, they just, they pale in comparison. I think Interstellar is really watchable and enjoyable and full of interesting ideas and and uh, well-executed situations and scenarios. I think the one complaint I have near the end, which I think is generally pretty strong, I have sort of a mild complaint about the, the Tesseract scene, which the first time I saw it, I, I don't remember being bothered by it at all. I was just really swept up in the concept and everything. This time I found the climax a little talky. Um, and, you know, it's a situation where Matthew McConaughey's character is essentially alone, um, although he is talking to the robot, but the ideas are just explained in so much detail, and I kind of found myself wishing that we could have pieced it together somewhat ourselves. I think that might have been a little more compelling. Stuff like that is probably the biggest way that this differs from 2001. Uh, one way in which it differs, which didn't necessarily have to be a liability, is, you know, 2001 is sort of an infinitely, infamously cold, uh, somewhat anti-humanist movie in some ways. I think in theory it has a humanist concept maybe, maybe in Arthur C. Clarke's treatment, which I haven't read. But in Kubrick's execution, it just seems uh, almost anti-human in a way. I think Interstellar is going for a more humanist heart here. It grounds the 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 story in um you know a sense of family and sort of a spielbergian fatherhood theme the best scene in the movie though might actually be one that is grounded totally in emotion and a sense of family and it's really outside of what i would think of as nolan's wheelhouse as i mentioned with memento there's always a sort of a rote quality to these uh, emotional familial entanglements that he comes up with to give it almost feels like screenwriting 101 like oh we got to give the character some sort of trauma or crisis and it never quite feels real to me, like Inception being maybe the best example. I don't quite buy this character's haunted backstory, even though it's in many ways the narrative engine of the film. Interstellar, I think, is more successful overall. There's more time to sort of develop these relationships between the characters. They still don't entirely feel lived into me. There's a bit of a tacked on sentimentality, but there's one major exception to that. And that's the sequence where they're passing around a black hole. So they're going to, the characters will age much slower or rather let's put it this way time passes 
at a totally different rate than it is on Earth. For, I think, every hour that they're on this planet, they would lose something like 20 years on Earth. So Matthew McConaughey gets back up to the ship after a disaster happens, and he lost more time than he thought he was going to, and he watches these messages that have been sent to him. So for him, only like an hour has passed, but decades have passed for his kids. And he even says before he leaves to his daughter, you know, when I come back, you might be the same age as me. So he watches them get older. The son delivers a few messages and he's crying. And there's a really beautiful piece of music by Hans Zimmer that's almost chilling in a way. And that I actually find really deeply moving. I mean, the concept itself is just really compelling. And I don't, I can't think of any other movie that I've seen it play out quite that way. I think there have been other films that play with this idea of age and parents seeing their child grow up and maybe losing the chance to see them grow up and trying to catch up with that later. This way of executing it, I think, shows really the best potential that sci-fi can have, which is to take a common situation, put it in an unfamiliar context, and somehow draw out the heart of it even more by doing so. That scene is just extraordinary. McConaughey does a brilliant job. It's the best directing from like a human emotional standpoint that Nolan has ever done, I think. Aside from that, I would say that Christopher Nolan's cinema is a cinema of concepts, and its most genuine emotional content is the euphoria that comes from the pleasure of playing with those ideas. It's the cerebral as visceral. So what I mean by that is um, I don't think of them really as intellectual films, even though they're playing with all these often sort of heady concepts. I think of them as films. There's something almost childlike in just the, the palpable thrill that he has in creating and solving these puzzles and playing games with the viewer and uh, not doing it from a manipulative, snarky, cynical, arms-folded kind of way, but as if he's almost saying, look at this this wonderful contraption I've found or created. Isn't, isn't it just the most fun thing in the world to play with? And I think that comes across in his best films and is something that I, I respond to in that way. I received some listener feedback after this uh, Film and Focus was published for patrons back in 2018. Here's what uh, Jeff one of my patrons had to say. I remember some controversy about Interstellar when it came out in that it misses an opportunity to say something worthwhile about our immediate future and environment. The food shortages are just caused by a blight with no reference to climate change, capitalism, GM crops, pollution, or any of the more tangible issues that food supplies face today. Nolan seems to be playing it safe here as the disaster facing humanity seems to be an act of God rather than something of our own making. Of course, if it is a crop blight, then I'm not sure how decamping to another planet will help. These things tend to travel alongside us. So, as far as Interstellar goes, um, that's an interesting point, and I think it ties into what Christopher Nolan does in the Dark Knight films, where he kind of plays with politics, and then he's very, like, coy about sort of not being non-committal about it. I find a little bit disingenuous. I think those films are fairly conservative, um, whether or not he wants to fully embrace it, it's, it's there in the films and in, in sort of different ways. But, you know, he had some quote about the Dark Knight Rises saying, well, we just want to play with all these ideas of the 99% and, uh, and populism and, uh, you know, surveillance in the first film, blah, blah, blah. But he says, oh, we want to play with all these ideas and just throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And it, it's like, uh, you know, maybe he's fooling himself. I don't know. Here's some more feedback from another patron, Stephen. 
interesting discussion of David Lynch versus Christopher Nolan's career trajectories, how they both were offered blockbusters. One went one way, one went another, and, well, you'll see. When he suggested The Prestige, he wrote, You haven't written much about Christopher Nolan other than the Dark Knight trilogy, and I'm interested in the fact that he is an unusual in ho- that he is unusual in Hollywood as a director who has allowed big budgets to make films on the story and subject of his own choosing, which are often as strange as mainstream big-budget films get. Very few directors are granted this privilege, and I think The Prestige, or maybe Dunkirk, is his best. Interesting thought. If Dune had been a smash hit, would David Lynch have been persuaded to direct a sequel? And if so, would his career have panned out much more like someone like Nolan, who was plucked to work on a franchise which, though its success, has allowed him creative freedom and big budgets? Now, that is an interesting thought. Um, You know, these uh, counterfactuals with Lynch are always really compelling because there's so many of them. What if Mulholland Drive had been a TV show? What if Twin Peaks had been a bigger success? What if I had been able to make additional Twin Peaks films in the 90s? What if Dune had been the saga it was supposed to be? And so Stephen raises a good point. There were plans, as I understand it, to make sequels. And Lynch thought this was kind of what he'd be doing in the 80s, is making these Dune movies and living inside that universe, which in in a way is an expansion of what he did with Eraserhead, you know, where he crawled inside that world and lived in it for seven years. He'd be doing this with Dune. Um, But obviously it wasn't meant to be. And in retrospect, he felt like he was kind of convincing himself that uh, Dune was a good fit for him and that, in fact, this this whole production process had been really compromised and and had been uh, misleading himself all along. So, yeah, it's it's hard to say. It's a great question, though, because it it is really analogous um, to have this big budget adaptation blockbuster series that you're planning ahead of time to be a series. And it's based on sort of source material you can spin out. You're not like making up new stories each time. And it's all helmed by one director who has their own vision and their own sort of aesthetic, but it's not their creation like Star Wars is with George Lucas, right? So really there aren't that many examples of that that I can think of. Usually the director is just a director for hire or they're like the auteur who came up with this universe as well. But um, both Nolan and Lynch, if Dune had been, you know, a success and spun out into a franchise, would have been in the position of being um, fairly unique uh, filmmakers with their own authority and independence, helming this material, which was which existed much outside of their own canon, you know, either Batman or Dune. So I don't know if I have an answer for that. I think often with these listener feedbacks, I'll kind of muse a little bit myself, but I'm not going to have necessarily... Uh, any, you know, definitive conclusion, but I would love to have uh, more people write in on this subject and hear what they think about it. That's pretty much it for this episode. As noted, I will share my updates in a moment. Before I do, just wanted to say that the next episode is going to be on swing time. All of these films that I'm going to be discussing will be uh, just, you know, classic films from that kind of golden age era. And uh, four of these will be full film reviews lasting through the entire podcast, but uh, two of them will be collections of smaller film capsules, sometimes just a minute or two discussion, in some cases longer. I think one of them is like six or seven minutes, almost like a half length of a normal podcast for me, and uh, just kind of collected by, in some cases, theme, but just in other cases, just random films that I discussed on my Patreon podcast in the past for, you know, my viewing diary of what I've been watching. So I hope you enjoy those. Uh, Swing Time will be a full review coming in July. 
Let's move on to my updates of what I've been up to on all my other podcast feeds. So you definitely don't have to wait for till July to hear from me again. Here, here's what's been going on with all of that. Uh, here's the stuff that I've been up to since the uh, previous podcast in May, quite a bit actually. So I'm going to give you the updates here before we begin the episode proper. My Lost in Twin Peaks podcast feed resumed after pausing in December when I finished season one. I actually jumped ahead to the film Firewalk with me which of course came out after season two, but it was the 30th anniversary of that film this May. It's a premiere at Cannes where it was notoriously booed and then since its reputation has gone up. So I had so much to say about this. It was a a two-week span of daily episodes and uh, the topics were The Path to Firewalk With Me, Current Events, Critical Archive, Personal and Fan Reception, which included The Missing Pieces. Uh, Specifically, The Missing Pieces, those are the deleted scenes from Firewalk With Me that Lynch, uh, David Lynch pre- uh, presented as like a standalone uh, presentation like 20 years later. So I also had the production context and current events for that, where we look at what happened, uh, what was going on in the world when that came out in 2014. The earlier uh, current events section covers what was going on when Firewalk with me came out in 1992. So two different historical periods in there. Uh, the In the Weeds episode also include the missing pieces where I look at like character stats and, and uh, motifs and things like that. There was a mythology episode, which included the missing pieces alongside Firewalk with Me. And then I had an episode just on the missing pieces where I focused on the story events, the scenes in those, uh, the you know, the deleted scenes themselves. And then for the remainder, the following week, I just focused on the film Firewalk with Me, not the missing pieces. I covered subplots, then an episode on Laura's Outer Circle, the main character, Laura Palmer, some of her storylines. Uh, the next episode was Laura's Inner Circle. And then I had an episode... Uh, called Mysteries, which I think is the most important episode of this entire podcast, where I talk about the kind of central themes and narratives and how they culminate in the climax of this film, Firewalk With Me. And then following that, I had episodes called The First Archive, My Second Archive, and My Third Archive, covering different periods since 2008 that I've talked about the uh, the film. I've written about it certainly way more than any other movie on my site. Written about it, had videos, had podcasts, and I sample pieces of those in these archive episodes. And then finally, uh, an episode called My Missing Pieces Archive, and where I look at uh, just, you know, what I'd written about the or made videos about and, and podcasts about uh, the missing pieces in the past, those deleted scenes. So I wound the, the two weeks up with that. So that's a huge volume of episodes if you are into Twin Peaks or Firewalk Me or even just curious about it like you know see it first before you listen to this stuff or it'll be totally nonsensical but uh, this is next to my video essays certainly the most um, important work that I've done on that particular film and its place in Twin Peaks and I put out uh, illustrated companion I think about halfway through those two weeks where I have a detailed itinerary of everything that's in every episode with the time codes and with illustrations like screenshots or pictures from like news events or Time Magazine covers from the time. It's just a huge thing you can scroll through as you're listening that kind of visualizes some of what I'm talking about. So that's certainly the big one, but a lot of other stuff was published in May as well. I released uh, the Lost in Twin Peaks number 32 Uh, group of episodes on season three parts one and two so I wanted to keep up this anniversary theme where it's now the fifth anniversary of the Showtime Twin Peaks the Return series that came out in 2017 so I had episodes on uh, what you know welcome to the 
the that series uh, out of town where i talk about stuff storylines that happen outside of twin peaks back in town where i talk about the storylines in twin peaks mythology where i talk about the the mythos of the show i guess you could say without getting too spoilery for those listening who haven't watched twin peaks i had a current events episode talking about what was happening that week in 2017 so now looking back at a period that was pretty recent but with all the stuff that's happened since then, it, it is a bit of a time capsule to look back on the first year of the Trump presidency and everything going on then. I have an In the Weeds episode for that, uh, for those episodes as well. And then a archive uh, episode where I just share my previous work on that. And there was an illustrated companion published for that at the end of that week. That's how I'm going to be publishing the illustrated companions for season three. Same sort of breakdown as I gave for Firewalk With Me. And then right now we are in the midst of my week of coverage of parts three and four. So I'm going to try to keep doing this all summer. I'm barely keeping up, so I may have to pause it at some point, but I'm hoping I can do it through September when the anniversary of the season three finale will air. So right now, at this point, when you're hearing this episode, I've got uh, the welcome out of town, back in town mythology episodes up, and the current events episode will be coming up uh, probably within the hour of this. Like it's pretty close by that that should be going up tonight too so that's what i've been up to on lost in twin peaks podcast feed that seems to be generating a lot of uh, enthusiasm which i appreciate on twitter it certainly has far and away i mean by maybe a hundredfold or something like that uh certainly maybe you know tenfold uh, the amount of listens as other podcasts do so chances are if you're listening to this you're already listening to that one too but uh if i've caught you and you've never seen twin peaks uh and you're enjoy my work on other films and TV. Trust me, you may want to explore Twin Peaks and hear my thoughts on that because I've got plenty. Uh, Speaking of which, on another uh, podcast feed, Twin Peaks Cinema, I put out an episode on The Sweet Hereafter, the 1997 film by Adam McGoyan, a Canadian movie about a school bus crash and how the town is responding to that. And I tied it in with Twin Peaks. This was part of a series called Traumatic Transformations, where I look at films that deal with characters who have traumas and kind of create these stories or almost mythologies around them, which certainly relates to Twin Peaks. On YouTube, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number 10, audio with TV Peaks author Andreas Halskov. So interviewing this Danish scholar about his work on Twin Peaks. And on Patreon, I released part two of that discussion, which was twice as long as the public part for the $5 a month patrons. And I also put up some announcements and uh, links for my dollar a month patrons on Patreon, where I uh, continued to share uh, teasers, I guess, like advance entries for my Twin Peaks character series, a written series where I write about each Twin Peaks character. And uh, in this case, there were three bonus characters that I uh, discussed, and I had all the links in there. And then following that, I put up a post called Each Month for Patrons, Three Twin Peaks Character Series Advances, Public Series Postponed, in which I explained that I was no longer going to be doing quite as many of these uh, character series advances each month, but that I would continue to do them and uh, like three a month going forward. And finally, I had a post just said monthly update podcast is imminent. Uh, That was explaining that my uh, dollar a month page, uh, patron podcast that I do where uh, l- my now, my approach to it now is going to be sharing like updates, what I've watched, what I've been listening to in terms of podcasts, usually other things that sort of cross my radar and also how my work is going. So just kind of an updates podcast. I'm not going to be doing longer film reviews on there. It's going to be a little pared down so I can focus on all this other work I'm doing. On my site, uh, in terms of written pieces, I published 
The Avengers, The Unseen 2012, which was part of a series, uh, The Unseen, where I watch the most popular movie from a given year that I've uh, never seen before. So I'd never seen The Avengers, and it was the 10th anniversary coming up on May 4th. I thought, I'll resume the series for a bit with this, and I did, and then I had to postpone it again because I just didn't have time to work on everything else. And then finally, some status updates. Summer schedule, Lost in Twin Peaks Season 3 begins tomorrow. Twin Peaks character series postponed to the next conversation. Another status update called Trouble with the Schedule on Lost in Twin Peaks, The Unseen and More, just explaining all the fluctuations of these series I'm doing. Okay, so that's it. That's what I've been up to. You can see why I had to wait till the end of the episode for those who are not as interested and wanted to just hear the uh, film discussion. I didn't want to put this at the beginning as I usually do. That's probably one of the longest work updates I've ever offered on here. But there's just so much going on that if you're a Twin Peaks fan and you're listening to this and somehow you missed all that or you overlooked some of it because it's all going up on different platforms and so forth, you can check it out and uh, and explore it now. So hope you enjoy that stuff. Spectacular production numbers, stunning beauties, and the toe-tapping magic of the king and queen of captivating rhythm, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You're not going to run out with all our dough. i got to get married. I wouldn't let you marry her for $10,000. How about twenty? dollars 